I think there is a recognition among younger people that we are whole human beings and um, not just productivity agents. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Okay, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast, Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted um, with today's guest, who will introduce herself. Yeah. Uh, Ellie, please go ahead. Oh, I'm Ellie. I'm from Rochester, New York. I grew up in uh, a small farm town outside of the city of Rochester. Mm -hmm. And my passion my entire childhood was swimming. Once, when I was nine years, once I started, that is. My dad and I were walking by the public library, and the public mm -hmm. library always had this display of community organizations. And one one year, I was like eight or nine, they had the local Hilton area swim team on display, little swimsuits, pictures of people in a pool. And my dad said, Ellie, what do you think about this? Might you want to try swimming? I loved the water, loved going to the beach. And I said, sure, dad. Yeah, let's try it. And in retrospect, he's told me, like, I, your mom and I were, were kind of, we thought you were pretty fearful of things. And we wanted to get you to try, uh -huh. to like find a thing yeah. that you could help you overcome your fears. And boy, did I find swimming. I loved that first year. I would, I would go to swim practice once a week. And, you know, there's the brushstroke you're supposed to do it like mm -hmm. this. And I would just dive all the way underwater. Because <laughs> I wanted to be in the water, come up here, boom, up and down. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know how I got here on this tangent, but it does. It is a part of my story. I, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was. I loved the water, but I was mm -hmm. scared of the competition. Mm. I remember my first swim meet. My dad drove me and to the pool, and I sat in the car and I cried in the car, and I said, "I don't want to go in. I don't want to go in and race. I loved the water, but I did not want that that heat." Uh -huh. And he said, fine, you don't have to swim in the meet, but if you're not going to swim, you're going to have to go inside and tell Coach John. So I walked in that pool. I looked at Coach John and I couldn't tell him. <laughs> and so I raced and I yeah. absolutely loved it. The rest is history. That sparked my competitive drive. Okay. Um, and for not for 10 years, mm -hmm. year round, I swam competitively and that was my life. Wow. I, I, I will get back to this. Um actually because i i think it's maybe also has to do with how you your career went right yeah. um that that influenced um i you know this but i i think it's a nice thing for for the listeners to know because rochester i am coming i'm coming from the netherlands mm -hmm. uh, but the strange thing is that when i was in puberty you know 12 you know around 12 years old i went alone to the us uh, because an aunt and an uncle uh, were living in, in the U.S., so I was visiting them. My aunt lived in Levittown, uh, Long Island, but my uncle and his family lived in Rochester. So I've been in your town 
for actually a couple of weeks. Um, so I know the town very well. I mean, it's close to, uh, it's where Kodak yes. was, right? And my uncle and my cousin worked there as well. Um, so it's, yeah, so it, it's, it's for me, it's pretty cool to, to meet somebody that, where we have something in common, how, how weird that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. Your first, really, that was your first international trip. Is that right, Maurice? Yeah. Was to, yeah. To well, US. I mean, Italy, you know, but sure. flying, yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Neat. And alone. Neat. Uh -huh. um, you know, although alone is, is, you know, only the flight and you're picked up. It's not that, it's not that spectacular, but, but uh, I mean, I, for me, it was spectacular in terms of, yeah, you're alone in the in a plane and um yeah, it was, yeah. It was nice. the the first it's like the first place we go cross-culturally can have such a i mean some people have a life a multicultural life because of who's raising them because of where they live because of their life experiences in my life experience not so much um coming from a relatively small somewhat homogenous town um but it's interesting to me to think that the feelings I might have experienced when my first overseas trip was um, mm -hmm. studying abroad in Uganda. Oh. And to think that well, my my regular town, you know, where my more, more normal life happens is such a heightened memory mm -hmm. to you because you, you gain such a self-awareness when you're in a setting that's completely unfamiliar and you don't know the rules, <laughs> you don't know the, the norms and why people behave the way they do. And it's neat to think that Rochester was that special place for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of them, together with Levittown, which is also, a, you yeah. know, historically uh, a, a town that has a lot of, yeah, people know about it, although it's a small town, right? It's the first mm -hmm. town where, those all those houses were built in the same way. Um, mm -hmm. So so uh, Levittown also has something, yeah, really U.S. related. And your Rochester because of Kodak, I think as well, um, mm -hmm. very important. Hey, but um, yeah, so t t take us through, you know, your upbringing in Rochester, and ultimately you end up in Uganda, um, and that had to do with your undergrad study is that correct or or um, yeah yeah tell us a bit about you know why did you start why did you do the bachelor degree that you did and how did you end up in uganda ultimately and then you know where you are now yeah okay so when i went to college i picked kelvin college in grand rapids michigan because they had a hundred butterfly record that's a race in swimming that was okay. the same exact record <laughs> as my high school one wow. <laughs> that I hadn't broken. Uh -huh. I mean, that's my college decision. It was no more sophisticated <laughs> than I still got to break that record. Yeah. And I, I went to swim there uh, and study exercise science, pre-med, pre-physical therapy. I thought I wanted to be like the ultimate doctor, meaning mm -hmm. I didn't think doc medicine was good enough. It had to be medicine, nutrition, sports psychology, all wrapped up in one. I wanted to be skilled at pulling out mental and physical human potential mm -hmm. out of people. And I get to college and I'm swimming my freshman year at college. I'm in, in the cafeteria. And my friend is like, Ellie, you love people, don't you? I was like, yeah, I do. He's like, well, do you want to take this intro to international development class with me? I think it's all about loving people. 
I was like, sure, Tyler. I like our conversations. We'll have good philosophical talks after class. I'll take it. Yeah. And so that was my freshman year. And uh, it opened my eyes to the rest of the world. And I became aware of global economic injustices outside of my own backyard. Hmm. You know, growing up in Rochester, I remember being like eight, nine years old and my dad driving me through the city. He was good about like getting we lived in the kind of country but he was good about like see things see how people live these are your neighbors and I remember asking him dad how come there's this really nice house next to like a really rundown house and how come the neighbors don't just help their neighbors like how come this one looks nice mm -hmm. and this one looks rundown why why aren't they helping them <laughs> um and what I realized my freshman year was like I've had my head literally underwater mm. my whole life literally underwater and what if I took this drive and this passion that I have in swimming and this ability to hold myself accountable and be disciplined and applied that to structural barriers that people mm. face around the world instead of just me getting faster. And I was really compelled by that. Mm. So that's how I ended up quitting swimming. Um, oh, you totally quit swimming. Wow. Yeah. I did. And it still amazes me to this day that it was just you know, a hundred, I was a hundred percent in and passionate and for 10 years. And then it was just one day, it was just time to let it go. Mm. And it, it's almost, there's almost like uh surreal quality to that, that ability to have, have, have let go and not even have been aware of what a big deal it was at the time. So I did that so that I could study abroad because fulfilling the requirements of this major mm -hmm. was spending a semester abroad. And if you look back at it, just totally different, you know, than what you had experienced before. What is is then the you know um, the biggest lesson? I think the the one thing that I always keep with me is no matter no matter what, people are going to receive the messages that you send differently than the way you intend to send them, because that's especially cute when you're in a cross-cultural relationship or having a cross-cultural interaction. There's layers and layers of um, context and history and language that get missed in a single interaction or a single conversation between two people that have seen the world and have had a worldview that's remarkably different based on their life, where they, where they live <laughs> even, and, and their personal histories but that's true not just of a specific you know i may be speaking with someone who's from rochester new york and identifies as a as a white american woman from a blend of european an ancestry and yet we may s i i can still think of that as a think of my communication as cross cross worldview because that person mm -hmm. may have a very different worldview from me, and that affects the way, the way that they perceive the messages I send in communication, mm -hmm. and vice versa. Yeah. And then when you're done, you go to Chicago. Mm. Well, not not yet. By first, by way oh, of oh, there DC. was a period in between. Yes, first by way of Washington D.C., and it okay. was three or four years after that that we we met, Maurice. So mm -hmm. I left Uganda. I would say the other 
biggest impactful takeaway on my career. Yeah. It was two things. The program director, it was a bunch of North Americans studying mm -hmm. in East Africa. And he was like, this is going to be, people come like, white people from America come to Africa and for the first time and they're like, oh my God, it's going to change my life 180 degrees. <laughs> There's a lot baked in. There are a lot of a lot mm -hmm. of problematic things baked into that though that that attitude. And he's like, "This is not going to change your life that 180 degrees. It's going to change your perspective mm -hmm. by one degree. But at the end of your life, that one degree difference is going to land you in a very different place." Mm -hmm. I hold totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. The other thing was he, they we did we were able to unpack our identities in in context. Uh, while living with host families, we'd go to live with our host families, come to school and have um, the program had some specific coursework and, and conversations around like, what is it, what is, what do you, what kind of baggage are you carrying <laughs> with your identity as um, an American, as a white person, as a, how, whatever it is in that, in the case, it was, it was, it was a lot of white Americans in that, in that classroom. And it was also a faith-based program. So we were able to mm. kind of unpack um, how culture, our own culture in North America had informed our view on what Christianity, how the practice of Christianity looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to receive the gift of recognizing that despite cultural differences, what the church can be and it is supposed to be is this universal body that unites people from vastly different mm. cultural, ethnic, and even religious backgrounds. So anyway, all that to say, how that got me to DC, I basically decided, yeah, international development doesn't need another white American person in the field. <laughs> I'm fascinated by this. I care. I care that my host mom and my neighbors that live down the road from me, they have power and autonomy in their lives to decide how to live their lives the way they all live. Right now, me coming in on a USAID program is reinforcing. And, you know, in my 19-year-old perspective, I was like, I'm just reinforcing the power dynamic because I'm walking home from school and people are inviting me into their house and trying to serve me nice things just because I'm a white American person. And I didn't want to be a part of that. Mm. <laughs> but I did want to do the work. So mm -hmm. I went to DC because that's, I recognize like, I can, you can get rid of all your so-called wealth, but you can never get rid of your privilege. Mm -hmm. And as a US citizen who represents the US government, whether I like what it's doing or not, whether I like the way aid and development organizations are implementing their programs or not, I like, I, I represent that. <laughs> and so how can I go inside of that? political and policy machine that determines the way aid organizations administer money um, and power mm -hmm. and change that from the inside using the privilege of my American citizenship. That's how I got to DC and kind of wanted to get inside the aid reform policy community and get involved in that work. You know, I, I was able to, I, I had a wonderful pedagogy at Calvin College on international development. It was very partnership oriented. I credit Roland Hoxbergen and Tracy Caparis and the um, the department that they built and the philosophy they instilled in their students as 
you know, partnership first and asset-based, you know, looking at strengths, looking at assets and community, asset-based community development. So the combination of that, my observations about what my identity and presence meant in my community in Uganda, in the community I visited in Uganda, and then kind of trying to understand how those decisions were made inside the U.S. foreign policy machine led me to the aid reform movement while I was at, F at FHI. Ellie, Ellie, one quick question, actually, because I'm, I, I just realized that I know what what asset-based approach is. Ah, uh, yeah. But yeah, maybe for the listeners, can you explain what, what does it mean, um, asset-based uh, approach? The idea of an asset-based approach to community development is, look, we're all humans. We all have basic needs, food, water, shelter, security, jobs. Uh, jobs, I guess, is the modern day <laughs> way of meeting some of those needs. And, um, you know, for, for those of us who, who are looking at basic human rights and saying, I want to make sure that everyone around the world has access to those things. Uh, there's different approaches taken and many, many, the kind of conventional approach taken from the Western countries with power, like the United States, for instance, is you have a need, you have a deficit, you don't have enough food, you don't, you, your girls are pulled out of school before age nine. Like these are, these are problems we need to, like, how do, how do, how do we solve the problem? But an asset based approach to community development engages people where yes there is a some sort of need um that needs needs to be fulfilling but fulfilled but it looks at the strengths and it looks at the resources that are present within those people within that their community within the institutions that they participate in and seeks to help those partner with those individuals in leveraging the strengths and the assets and the resources at their disposal even if those resources may be limited from this perspective of somebody who is observing the violation of a basic human right and going, we can solve that problem. But in reality, all of us think about, I mean, if you even think about your own life and how you've, how you've grown, how you've changed, how you've accomplished things, it's drawing on resources inside of yourself and drawing on resources that exist outside of yourself. It's not coming from a place of deprivation and lack. It's coming from a pa mm -hmm. place of what do we have that we can use? No, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. And it's actually also how we met in, in the panel, right? Yes. We were talking about community-led development in yes. the particular panel at the UN. And instead of asking the first question being you know what you need is what you have which which you just explained so yes so clearly yeah yeah um yeah great so yeah um going back to to washington yeah yeah so even within the first week of my job as a business development officer mm -hmm. at, at fhi 360 i'm in a room with a bunch of other more experienced professionals i'm 22 years old just out of college and it's a bunch of Americans in a room talking about how we're going to design an anti an HIV AIDS prevention care and treatment program in Zambia. And some of those people in the room have been to Zambia for three weeks, maybe, <laughs> but nobody from there, nobody in the room is from Zambia, let alone the target communities that um, 
the U.S. government is soliciting proposals to, you know, deliver services to. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, suspicion confirmed. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> yeah, I, this is not good. So I stayed in that role as a business development officer because it gave me the opportunities to see exactly how the sausage is made, which was my mm -hmm. mission anyway. Mm -hmm. How do how how is foreign aid administered and how do we change it to make it more empowering, shifting of power? How do we shift power over decisions from a New Yorker in Congress who says Africa needs 800 million of basic education funding to an end a person, an end user who knows exactly what their own need, what their own, you know, desires, aspirations and needed investments are to get there. So that led me to um, working with the Locust Coalition after a few years, which is how Maurice and I met. Locust, as I mentioned earlier, was um, 14 different international NGOs. And it was particularly the people within those NGOs, some of the people within those NGOs who share this vision for local community-led development mm -hmm. and recognize that it involves a necessary shift of power and decision-making authority out of Washington, D.C. and New York, the places where the money is, and into the hands of the partners that we work with around the world. Um, and you know what? Here's what I, here's basically the long and the short of my last two, three years, my last couple of years in international development. I found the people that are doing the work. Maurice is one of them. <laughs> I found the people that are doing the work and I was like, I can join them or I can go solve another problem. Cause I trust these people. I trust their approach. I trust that they have their hands on the right level levers of power within Congress, within uh, Wall Street to get, get done what I believe needs to be done. They've identified the problem clearly because that's part of it you have to clearly define a problem before you can solve it and they're working on it and this is fun and I love this and I would love to participate but the other thing about reflecting on local leadership was I was early in my career I was like if I'm going to grow into a leadership role in my career and I don't believe in myself having a leadership role in international development then I guess I gotta get somewhere else and now that was, I, I do think that I I could have stayed mm. and kept doing things that I found a lot of joy and passion doing with amazing, you know, some of the best people I've ever worked with mm -hmm. and our close friends with to this day are from those years. And there, there's, there's still important work to, to be done by people who have privilege. I could have, I could have stayed, but. But you didn't. I didn't. I thought about my hometown. Mm-hmm. I thought about Rochester. I said, where am I from? What's my local community? Where can I authentically lead? And it started with the United States. That's American. And then it boiled down to New York state. And then it boiled down to Rochester. And it was, it was because of viscerally experiencing uh, what it feels like to not be sure about your future. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when I was in Ro growing up in Rochester, my dad was an engineer, mm -hmm. highly skilled. He's excellent at what he does. Let me take a moment to brag about my dad. <laughs> I love him. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> he, he does this thing called LabVIEW. 
Uh -huh. It's a software program for uh, testing various things, surgical tools, instruments, um, stuff that goes in the James T. Webb. And he he's one of the world leading experts on this National Instruments Forum online. He has, answers questions from people all over the world. Hmm. Highly skilled engineer. And yet I watched him get laid off three times growing up. Hmm. The economy in Western New York wasn't good. Hmm. You know, Kodak, as, as you you hold it in a place in your heart. I hold it in a place in my heart because everyone I knew parents were employed there. Yeah. <laughs> my dad, my uncle, mm -hmm. Lauren Peachy's parents, you know, everybody. It employed 60,000. And then over the course of my lifetime, it went down to employing almost no one, 2,000. I'm still mm -hmm. about 2,000 employees at, at Kodak. And so the second time my dad got laid off, I was in college freshman year. It was before I went to Uganda. And I watched that happen. I was like, my dad's really smart. He's honest. He's hardworking. That could happen to anybody. That could happen to me. <laughs> what am I doing? Um, I'm going into this field called international development. I don't know anything. I hear you go to the Peace Corps and you don't get paid. <laughs> I'm going to have student loan debt. What do I do? I actually, it's amazing. I almost quit college after that freshman year because I was so shaken, you know? Wow. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, my dad did was the one who convinced me, like, you kind of do need that piece of paper mm -hmm. to open doors. I do respect him, him, though, for giving me the autonomy to think through the problem myself. So, um, yeah, wild. And then I almost quit college again after I studied in Uganda. And I was like, <laughs> take a vow of <laughs> but you you almost quit swimming as well right so, well i did i yeah. did but i i made it through <laughs> i made it through college mm -hmm. and you and you you made a record as well so no i didn't <laughs> well i mean almost <laughs> own record i organized extremely, but that's still the thing. extremely fast time yes that's so, the yes. thing i've organized a lot of my decisions around mm -hmm. either questions that i have Mostly it's like big questions that I have or things that I'm still exploring. So I was still exploring breaking that 100 butterfly record when I chose Calvin College to swim at. But I was exploring what's my role as an American international development when I went to D.C. Mm -hmm. And then when I left for grad school in Chicago, I was exploring, okay, so what's my role in creating economic opportunity back home mm -hmm. in places like Rochester, New York, places that are disinvested non-coastal where you got a lot of regular i say regular because i don't know that's just the context I, I i grew up in but a lot of working class folks mm -hmm. um you know who aren't enjoying all the benefits of tech companies <laughs> and uh there's real consequences to folks like folks losing their jobs you know it displaces mm -hmm. people it displaces families my parents left rochester so it was a big question for me in my early 20s like huh there's something here that i i want to explore a little more mm. so w while you were studying in chicago you really got into another field Right. I did. Yes. So tell us about that and and then bring us where you are now and and then maybe you're yeah, going somewhere else again, right? So Yes. Yes, the the journey continues. 
I would summarize the through line of my career to say that I've been paying attention to, I've been following the money, not in the sense that I've been going to try, try and make a bunch of money. Definitely wasn't doing that in international development <laughs> at the beginning of my career. <laughs> um, but paying attention to who has the money because the money is what makes decisions. And often, you know, you have a bunch of well-intentioned intentioned people in a room pontificating about, oh, things should be done this way instead. Hmm. Maybe we could just solve the problem if we all come together and cooperate and collaborate, and yet uh, the money is still going to make the decisions. So that's what led me to the locus and trying to influence funders to kind of take their hands off of attachment to the outcomes of what their money achieved and let people decide for themselves what they wanted achieved with those investments. And then when I was pivoting to focus on domestic, you could say, you could call it economic development, I suppose, but it's about creating economic opportunity across, mm -hmm. you know, race, gender, and geographic location. Um, I was like, okay, so I heard that if you want to determine where capital, where money goes, you got to, you got to know some stuff about finance. Maybe you get into this thing called what's private equity investment banking. Okay. I hear they make decisions. Okay. I hear they have a lot of power. All right. Uh, well, venture capital sounds interesting because I actually had this theory, the thesis. I wrote this application to grad school that was like, I want to create, I want to raise a fund. And I had no idea how finance or money or anything worked. I want to raise a Great Lakes investment fund. I want to invest, and I call it Great Lakes because growing up in Rochester, it's on Lake Ontario. It's part of this agro-industrial Great Lakes region that share a lot of economic um, and cultural and historic similarities. Uh, and having a lot of deindustrialization and kind of poor economic opportunity in place is a common thread. Uh, as is a lot of a lot of racial issues related to the great migration, great migration. But that's another story for another day. Um, so I wanted to raise this fund that would invest in people who are building good companies in place, so that people could live where they want to live in the communities where they're they have history where they have family, where they have people and where they want to contribute and not feel like they have to go run off and go live in Silicon Valley or New York City like I do now <laughs> mm -hmm. in order to make a meaningful life and career. Um, so going to sh Chicago was the opportunity to learn finance and economics from some, what are considered the some of the most pioneering minds <laughs> mm -hmm. in the field of basically neoliberal economics. I was like, look, I don't really like all the rules, but I got to be able to speak your language mm -hmm. if I'm going to disrupt anything here. And I've got to be able to, you know, understand how finance works and finance. What am I talking about? Corporate finance, credit, equity analysis, investment banking, advisory, private wealth management. I didn't have any of that terminology um, when I started on my journey. But I, uh, I was like, okay, got to learn finance. So took a bunch of finance classes at Chicago Booth School of Business. And uh, I managed to 
I managed somehow to recruit into an investment banking internship that summer. I, I did that by skipping class and going to the library and teaching myself accounting and financial statement analysis from zero every day for two months. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had some great mentors. Shout out to Peter Biava, who oh. took me under his wing and stayed up with me till 11 p.m. in little library rooms, drilling me on financial statement analysis mm -hmm. and accounting so that I could get that opportunity. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. <laughs> <laughs> so meanwhile, while I'm doing this, I'm doing this because I hear if you want to be in venture capital, which is gives you the opportunity to deploy money to people and places that you want to deploy it to, you got to have two things. You can come up through investment banking and private equity, or you need to have entrepreneurial experience yourself. I wasn't planning to do both at once, but I was sitting on my couch in Chicago one night on the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship website. That's the Entrepreneurship Center mm -hmm. at UChicago. Yeah. Looking at those, looking at teams that were recruiting students to go through a uh, new venture challenge competition. Now, the new venture challenge at University of Chicago's what gave us Grubhub. <laughs> Grubhub came through that thing. It, they make real businesses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I saw. So guess what I see? I see this spreadsheet. I'm clicking through it and I, I really should probably go to bed, probably have to go to an economics class in the morning that I'm going to skip and go study finance at the library instead. But whatever, I'm on the couch doing this. I see a guy who um, is a physicist who's building a photonics company. Okay, photonics, who cares? Why would I care? I'm in public policy school studying finance. Well, photonics is the bedrock, is the bedrock industry of Rochester, mm -hmm. New York. We have this fantastic, what we call a cluster of optics, mm -hmm. photonics, um, science and technology base of talent because that is the science of light. Mm -hmm. It's a science of light. It's a science of um, optics and, and lasers and mm -hmm. Kodak employed a lot of these optical technical people. University of Rochester, Rochester Institute of Technology, fantastic photonics, preeminent programs. Mm -hmm. um, and there's all this base of talent, people, who, engineers who know the science of light mm -hmm. in Rochester. I remember in 2015 reading about how Louise Slaughter, the, the late Louise Slaughter, who was my congresswoman, um, for much of my life from representing Rochester, fought hard to get the American Manufacturing Institute for Photonics to Rochester, competing mm -hmm. with many other regions of the U.S. And Rochester won. I read that newspaper article in 2015. I was like, noted, photonics could bring this place back again. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I was like, this is, I'm latching onto this. I reached out. I said, hey, I got business development skills. I can I can tell the story this way, that way. We can do this, this, this. Uh, let's talk. And I ended up working, yeah, getting selected to work on that team mm -hmm. to enter a business proposal contest to even get into the class in the first place, the new venture challenge, which we got in. Um, and over the next three months, we would go and pitch our business every few weeks. Professor Steve Kaplan, I had some professors that you should be there that just 
life-changing, life-changing experience. He would fly in his VC friends from the East and West Coast to tear down our pitches. And I just ate it. I loved it. I oh, I, I, I just was thrilled to get up there and get torn down and then come back three weeks later with a better yeah. value proposition and a clearer customer proposition. Mm-hmm. Absolutely loved it. Fell in love. <laughs> so we did that. We went through that course. Uh, we ended up being finalists and getting a little investment from the new venture challenge. And uh, as that, in fact, it was a really interesting time of life, June, 2019 going, I remember, I think I, my investment banking internship started early. It started like early June. And I think Mm -hmm. I, I went and we pitched for, it was called Iris light technologies. And then I had to go to my internship like night day moonlight and daylight. And then I did my, my investment banking internship, which just crushed the life out of a human being because (laughs) in investment banking, you are expected, especially as a junior person and you're junior, no matter if you're 37 years old, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you just got out of your MBA program, then you have a wife and two kids and you're 37 years old. And I say a wife and two kids because it's still mostly men. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was Um, wondering that. Yeah. Yeah. In my office in Chicago, me and my two other MBA women co-interns were the only women that weren't secretaries. Um, Interesting. So anyway, all that to say, I slept like four hours a night that whole summer and I don't function by Thursday. <laughs> I just don't like I was useless, <laughs> just useless. It wasn't for me. And I should have wanted to recover after yeah. that, but I didn't. I <laughs> finished that internship on Friday, August 2nd or something like that mm-hmm. first. And on Monday, August 4th, I called up the founder of the photonics company. I was like, let's do this. Mm. And I started working with him in, raising money, hmm. building our pitch decks, building out our advisory board, uh, flying out to Idaho and pitching the Idaho Department of Commerce on how our technology could help prevent potato rot in their fields and winning money, <laughs> meeting some amazing, amazing research scientists. Uh, that So many shout outs I want to give right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> amazing people who are dedicated to their work. Um, dedicated to real inquiry and curiosity and the tenacity that it takes to be a scientist is um, it's outstanding. I I really enjoyed supporting those folks in, in starting to dream about how do you bring that to market? Mm -hmm. How do you make that change the world? Cause it's, it's scientists doing their research. They're bringing stuff that changes the world. It's an amazing story. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, well, you didn't stop there, right? Because you went on after that. Yeah. Yeah, the next, it was two and a half years. Two and a half Mm -hmm. years of building out an, an advisory team, building out a hiring and recruitment process yeah. and trying to get the next, the first couple of technical hires to support our, our, our CEO and founder in the lab, mm-hmm. um, taking part in other accelerators, the third derivative accelerator, a climate tech accelerator. My, now the pandemic happened during this time. Mm-hmm. So 
um, my foray into the entrepreneurial startup and venture capital world was through uh, Zoom, but fantastic because it just broke down a lot of barriers that had been in the VC world that require a lot of personal being in the room and knowing people. And it was like, it was like a perfect storm. Just like, now I can get on, I don't, now I can talk to you. I don't, I'm not flying to Silicon Valley, but we're talking. Mm-hmm. And uh, during that time, I got involved in this wonderful community, the Western New York startup community. There's some amazing, like, I can't tell you how amazing some and dedicated some of these people in Rochester and Buffalo are to um, supporting entrepreneurs of all types, mm-hmm. small business owners, those that are going to get venture capital backed, those that aren't, those that are going to dry trying, <laughs> mm-hmm. and those that are going to deliver incredible value to the region through uh, exits of, of of successful companies and those that are going to deliver incredible value to the region and the community because of showing up every day mm-hmm. and being helpful and supporting one another. I made some, um, I met some amazing people through that um, mm-hmm. community. Every mo- Wednesday morning we would have a zoom call and then Friday mornings we had book club and we would talk about, we would choose t- to go through various topics that were relevant to different startup founders and entrepreneurs um, lasting relationships to this day. And Ah, uh, 100% behind, 100% grateful for the opportunity to connect with that community as a entrepreneur when I was building Iris Light. Um, so it was so meaningful. It was so mm-hmm. special. That, that's an amazing story, Ellie. And and well, we we talked a bit before we started recording, and and you know you feel that maybe you are on another crossroads in in your ah. life and in your career, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have time to to go there because these conversations always go fast. I do want um, us to to um, change gears um, because you know that this particular podcast is a spin-off of my 100 mile walk the 11th that i actually just finished uh, one and a half week ago unfortunately i resulted in an injury on my left foot which hopefully uh-huh. will you know uh, go away within four to six weeks um but we talked you know when i was listening to you i man this is the third or fourth time we speak i i feel this drive so so the, the question i always ask is um and 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 if we can go with relatively quick short mm-hmm. answers that would mm-hmm. be great um yeah what what really you know what drives you you know what makes you get out of bed in the morning what is that the belief in human dignity and that everybody deserves a second chance mm-hmm. that everybody deserves an opportunity to build a meaningful and purposeful life and if I would ask you to walk 100 miles in a week or in five days, for which course would you do that? This or you can swim. The... Maybe you would like to swim. <laughs> I love that idea. It it would be for it be for the work. It'd be for workers. It'd be for workers to get paid mm-hmm. a dignified 
wage. Um, I'm going to borrow from Gene Sperling book, mm -hmm. Economic Dignity. I love how he puts the, he, he simplifies the term economic dignity. It's the concept of being able to both put food on the table and sit at the table and eat it with your loved ones, not run off to your second or third job. Jobs that single jobs that pay people enough mm -hmm. to live a good life. And you definitely contributed to, to, to making that, uh, make it happen. Um, going back maybe a bit what you mentioned in terms of um you know the stuff that you went through when you were going to uganda and the study that you did um because when i walk mm. you know i it, it is really a spiritual experience and definitely when you have pain you have to go to a zen mode mm. <laughs> no i am not the pain we just continue mm -hmm, walking mm -hmm. um but then you know if i have co-walkers we talk about spirituality but also about youth Mm. My question is, is uh, yeah, what do you see happening um, among youth and spirituality, religion in your community? Mm. I think there is a recognition among younger people that we are whole human beings and um, not just productivity agents. <laughs> um i'm very ms uh, amazed i uh i'm 31 i have a 21 year old sister mm -hmm. and her emotional intelligence her maturity her ability to read a room and to empathize with people it's certainly a gifting of her own individual unique personality but i would venture to say uh there's other people in her generation that are just more in tune with and aware of mental health, its connection to physical health, social health, uh, and awareness that caring for oneself, one's whole self, and the whole selves of other people is as important as anything in life. Um. Yeah, I, I, I would like to, no, th thanks for that. And and uh, what you just said reminds me of, of a conversation that I had with uh, a previous guest, Case Klomp, um, who has written this book, Thrive, and is, you know, is um, advocating for, you know, uh, yeah, really looking at the economics that we have developed uh, for ourselves. So so he, he wrote his book, Thrive, which is a compilation of a lot of economic uh, economy folks from you know describing donut uh, economics to well-being and and, and uh, buddhist economics but one of the things that he says always is that you know the centennials are you know their center of gravity starts with purpose and which is different than than some folks out there so i'm i'm not saying you know that i agree or not my, my point is i i think might be worthwhile to to check out the conversation that I had with mm -hmm. with him because uh, yeah. I, I I do while saying that you always need to be careful in terms of I, I think in terms of the whole generations are the same and I mm -hmm. also don't don't think millennials and centennials are happy that they are always clustered uh, <laughs> together so um hey and, and we have learned a lot about you and I'm, I'm really grateful for everything you shared I I, I really always get 
so enthusiastic about listening to you and they're like, oh, it gives me hope, you know, whatever you, what drives you. Um, I would like to ask you the question because music is very important to me. Um, if I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best describes who Ellie is for a, for a you know big part, which song or piece of music would it be? Canon in D. So Maurice, this was the hard one. I know. This, I know. This was the I, hard I, one. I... Music is also <laughs> important. I'm a, when I'm yeah. in, I'm in the the my Spotify Wrapped. Uh -huh. I'm in the top half percentage in the world of Leanne Le Havis fans, the top 1% of Snow Allegra fans. I love Neo Soul. Mm -hmm. Neo Soul, R&B, hip hop always make it to my top three on Spotify. Oh, and it's both lyrically and, you know, mm -hmm. what they, the, the way that music makes me feel that I identify with so deeply. And when I, thought about this question it was I was like I, words I mean because the mu if music is goes beyond the words I love I love that it combines two of my favorite things words and music songs that is <laughs> I could not think of a song words lyrics that describes me but I can tell you that my all-time favorite piece of music that I feel is it's like hey that's my that's that's me it does it can it can fit many emotions and moods and experiences of life is Paco Bell's Canon in D. Right and we will add uh, that song um, to the hashtag walk talk listen play mm. uh, list that uh, you can find on Spotify. So, which goes from Hartrook to Neo Soul to classical music to hymns. So, I, I would really uh, invite you or and, and the listeners to really check it out if you haven't done so. so um, yeah, there is there is. Um, one question uh, that I also ask that I would like to to ask you as well, and that is, um, no. Before I do that, I need to I need to bring you to the question of the previous guest because we cannot do that without. Yes. So so because this is this podcast is also about connecting people and and you know we're doing that between you and the listeners between you and me and but also i would like to connect you with the previous guest so the previous guest had the following question so the, my question for the next guest is what can you do today right now that would create more belonging and more care what you know what what small things could you do in your day that would do that look people in the eye, look people in the eye and greet them. I, I, I say that as a New Yorker living in the city. I remember when I first moved to DC, after a few months, I was telling my friends, I feel like I'm using my sen losing my sensitivity to human beings. Cause I walk by thousands of people on the subway on my way to work every day. And I don't see them anymore. And I'm trying to practice that 
as I walk down the street, sometimes, <laughs> um, or not even just in the street, but even in the office, people are in and out. And there's this awkward thing where, okay, I last saw you here like five weeks ago when you happened to be here on a Tuesday also, and I forgot your name. And then it keeps happening because there's such less frequent contact with the same people that it becomes a little like, it's like oh, you just kind of want to dodge, dodge the eyes, turn the corner and not admit that you forgot someone's name again. But I'm trying to do the human dignifying thing mm. and acknowledge people. Your question for the next guest. What are you... What are you accepting as doctrine of our economic system that ought to be questioned for the sake of human dignity? Okay, that's not an easy one for the next guest. Sorry, um, <laughs> not, but no, I'm not sorry. <laughs> we can talk about it. Next guest and I, we can have a conversation about it. <laughs> yeah, oh, that, that would be cool. Um, yeah, you know, uh, Steve Hartman of CBS apparently has uh, started a program or and made videos around one simple act of kindness, uh, you know, and the potential to create a rippling a ripple effect. Um, two questions around that. Um, what are your thoughts about, let's say, the power of a simple act of kindness and its mm -hmm. rippling effect? And if I ask you, uh, it's the second part of the question, if you ask you to be part of this uh, right now, I'm putting you on the spot, what would you do, you know, this week or this day as part of your simple act of kindness? Mm. What would I do? Mm. Oh, first is do you believe in the the power of a simple act of kindness and its rippling effect? Yeah, I do. Hmm. I do. Po positive behavior begets positive behavior, and negative behavior begets negative behavior. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When how often does it make my day when somebody's simple, simply kind? Totally lifts the whole countenance up, lifts the physical feeling that you have in your heart, in your face, in your mind, and. I come home and I want to I want to tell people this happened. Look at think about it. Look at this nice thing that this person did. Uh, I really do love hosting. I think it's a less common practice now opening one's home to other people. But I I wouldn't feel like I'm living well without having people in for a simple meal and conversation. So I'm going to push you. So who will you invite this week then? It's on the tip of my mind. This week. I'll, in, I'll invite someone who has been starting to come to the church that I attend mm -hmm. to join a group of, of friends and I um, for a meal in the home. Right. Somebody new. Um, 
quick question. You know that I'm passionate about uh, sustainable development goals. I always ask my guests, you know, if they don't know about it to sort it out. I know you're familiar with the sustainable development goals. Um, my quick question to you is, what do you like, what do you want my listeners to know about sustainable development goals? They're for everyone. The sustainable development goals are for everyone, everyone's life and in every industry. Uh, it is not a tangential thing. They are achievable when everybody person when each person takes a little bit of individual ownership and just ask ask themselves the question, how can I advance this one? There's 179 indicators that is to the 17 sustainable development goals. Don't tell me you can't find one that you identify with. <laughs> You're the first person that knows the exact number of the indicators. That's so that's great. Um, okay, your last message, invitation, or question for the listeners. Oh, choose joy. Choose joy, truly. I'm learning to practice more joy and more peace. Okay, is is there anything I should have asked you that I? I didn't. You ask great questions, Maurice. It's hard to say. <laughs> you ask really fantastic questions. I think we could talk for three more hours, and I'd love to reverse it and ask you the same. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't do that. I'm, I'm the host. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for for your willingness to uh, to talk with me. You know, share your wisdom and experience with me and the audience. Uh, it was awesome. So well, it's an honor. Um, yeah. Good it's luck with with your next steps whatever that may be. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen, please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.